This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. I'm a great lover of science fiction films, and I have talked before about my fondness for the film Forbidden Planet. I don't know if you've ever seen Forbidden Planet. It's from the 50s. Great picture. Still holds up today. There's, it's great drama. It's great science fiction. The special effects for its time were quite good. And uh, great performance by Leslie Nielsen in a serious role, and great performance by Walter Pidgeon as well. But I haven't seen the film in years. But there's one part of the film where all the guys that uh, are the crew of this spaceship go down to this planet to go to this machine and get your IQ tested. And the guy that's a doctor or something, he gets his IQ tested and it's just through the roof, through the roof. And then the captain of the starship gets his IQ tested and it's okay. It's significantly less than the doctor. And the guy that's administering these IQ tests says something like, ah, well, that's okay. He's the captain. He just needs a nice, loud, booming voice. He doesn't need to be that smart. The, <clears throat> the thing that I felt that I've always made up for with any lack of knowledge or insight or humor or, on my part is I think I have a very melodious voice. I think I have a voice that can be soothing I think I have a voice under norm, normal circumstances, which you want to fall asleep to or wake up to, right? However, I hear the way that I sound with a cold. I hear the nasality in my voice, and I'm driving myself crazy listening to myself. Now, if that's how I'm making myself feel, I can only imagine what I'm doing to you. What does that mean? That means I have a special treat for you. I have searched far and wide for the man with the best voice in all of radio. And he also happens to be pretty intelligent. And that is Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, who is going to stay with us for the hour. He is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and an edutainer with expertise in astronomy, space, weather, anything that happens in the sky. And he's also a podcaster uh, for WABCRadio.com and a brand new official contributor to WABC in New York. Steve, it is great to talk with you, and it's uh, it's even better to call you a colleague, finally. Well, Frank, good morning, and thank you so much for the kind comments. And to all the listeners out there, we say good morning. Just a privilege and honor, uh, you know, obviously with the radio station that I grew up as a person living in New York and New Jersey, as so many others. And just a little tribute, if you don't mind, a good friend of mine, his name is Tony Recasino. He just sadly passed away. He's my age, 66, and both of us lived in, in Hackensack, New Jersey. And what did we do, Frank? We'd run down to the WABC antenna when we could get down that way in Lodi, New Jersey, and we'd actually fish in the little swamps down there. So, Tony, if you're listening to us in the afterlife, I just wanted to pass that on, Frank, because it's an honor to be part of this radio station. Who would figure that one day I'd be staring there looking at the antenna, and we're doing this That's today, wild. so it's a real honor. 
That is wild indeed. All right. Um, there's a lot that I want to go over with you, namely the fact that I think for the first time in anyone's memory, there is going to be a big eclipse, a total lunar eclipse on Tuesday, which happens to be Election Day. Now, there's got to be some sort of cosmic meaning about some uh, upset election wins in this year. What's, what, uh, what can we look forward to with this eclipse on Tuesday? Well, it's interesting. We'll start with the East Coast, Frank. It's a total lunar eclipse. This follows one that we just had back in May that was pretty much favored for the western part of the United States, and this one technically also is. So for everybody listening in the eastern time zone, and don't forget, we make the big time change for a good portion of the United States, and then times change, too, as you're looking at this eclipse. So in just brief synopsis here, it's a very early morning eclipse. There's a lot of technicalities on this, but I would just suggest to everybody on the East Coast that if you're looking to see this eclipse, it's going to happen very early in the morning, just before sunrise. So the eclipse will actually begin, the partial phases in Eastern Time, Eastern Standard Time, 4.09 a.m. That's when you'd have to be placed in a clear location, you know, not near buildings, the clearest view of the horizon. Totality is going to begin at 5.16 a.m. Eastern Standard Time and just convert time zones across the country. The mid-eclipse of this particular event, which is the totality phase, 5.59 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And this total eclipse will end at 6.41 in the morning, Eastern Standard Time again. But what's interesting, Frank, there's 85 minutes of totality. And what does that mean? It means that the moon, which will be just a few days before apogee, meaning it's almost at its farthest point away. So it's a smaller disk moon that you'll see with the eye, and it gets more time inside that central shadow. So it transits through the Earth's deep shadow called the umbra, and it lasts for some 85 minutes. But if you look at the entire thing from uh, geopolitics or whatever, there has never been a total lunar eclipse on Election Day in U.S. history. That's an interesting fact. So isn't that kind of auspicious? Here we go for people that, of course, are going to go vote, and we encourage that in person if they haven't done their part mailing things. We're going to be having this eclipse just before sunrise. It takes place, and then that full day of the election. So the next time in history, according to those that do these deep predictions, when would be the next total lunar eclipse if the country exists or if we're out doing elections? I hope so. Mark the date of November the 8th, 2394. 2394, so at about 20. 372 years. You're exactly right. And there's a magical number there that you just mentioned because these, these eclipses repeat in a cycle of about 372 years for it to happen on the same date. But this eclipse is part of something called a Cero cycle, and I don't want to get too deep into it because of other questions that I'm sure people have. It's called the Cero cycle number 136, and the last time we had an eclipse of this series. So Ceroses have a series of eclipses, and there's so many of them. The last one occurred back on October the 28th of 2004, and the next one of that Cero cycle, not to confuse everyone, would occur on November the 18th of 2040. So this is a fascinating thing that's going to happen. And now, if you scratch your head and say, well, wait a minute, Dr. Sky, what's uh, going to be the next total lunar eclipse that we can see in relativistic short time in the short term? Mark the date of March 14th, 2025. So that's the next big one. So if you miss this one, weather conditions, you know, a lot of times the weather doesn't cooperate. But if it does, it's going to be a big event. Out here in Arizona, of course, we'll be doing things for local television and all the other things, plus a group of people that want to watch it. 
So get that coffee going and uh, dress warmly in accordance with the weather. So it's pretty exciting. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to take questions throughout the hour for Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Steve, this is uh, the first time I believe that – yeah, not I believe. This is the first time we've spoken that you are being heard in Alaska. Uh, we are on now on a great oh. station – uh, KBYR in in Anchorage, Alaska. Anything you could tell folks about um, their Alaska sky viewing? Because I have a I have a hunch that there's some particularly interesting sights to see over there. Well, I envy them, and welcome to the family, as you would say, Frank. And of course, we all mean that. The more stations that this particular radio show is heard, obviously, it's great to get this message out on the other side of midnight. But to go right to it. Those folks, I envy them in a way. Obviously, the temperature we all know would be colder. But for the darkness that comes, the shorting, shortness of the days that are happening right now, this eclipse should be visible up to the, you know, in the great state of Alaska. But it's interesting up there, Frank. One of the things that I think maybe we should do is team up with that radio station, and I'm serious about it. The best thing they have that we don't have is regular occurrences, as they're probably going, yep, we get it pretty much all the time. The beautiful Aurora Borealis. Can you imagine seeing that on a regular basis with all the sun activity? So Aurora activity is strong. The moon continues to get brighter. Obviously, it'll be a little lower in the sky because of the higher latitude. But, wow, that's a great place. And I've not been there. Have you ever been no, there? No, no. My, my parents were there on uh, on an Alaska cruise or two, and uh, they've had nothing but great things to say. So it is it is on my list. It is on my Absolutely. list. Absolutely. Would be great. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Bill in Huntington. Hello, Bill. Oh, how you doing? Um, Good morning, Bill. All right. Now, when I was a child... I looked at pictures of nebula and galaxies in Life magazine, and the Orion Nebula was red, white, and blue, and the Ring Nebula was yellow and red, and the Andromeda Galaxy was golden in the core, and then the spiral arms, it was purple. And then my parents bought me a telescope, and the, the Orion Nebula was white, and the ring nebula was this faint smoke ring, and uh, Andromeda was a fuzzy white oval. And I figured out that all of this was a figment of the color film they used. Yes. Okay. And now we have these automated space telescopes. Bill, Bill you're aware we only have an hour here, right? <laughs> I love it. Bill? Yeah, okay. All right. The colors are totally false, and they make the near-infrared image brown, and they superimpose them all. Okay? Now, sure. I know all that. All right, Bill. I'm sorry. I got to take pity on the audience here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step in. If you want to comment, uh, Steve, on uh, any... Do. No, ahead, I please. think Bill's onto something, and here's the simple response I'd give from what I think I That diminishes your credibility right there. No, it was very interesting what he was talking about. The images that are coming through from these telescopes, they have these grandiose color images. They're long-term exposures with different type of cameras, even a regular camera out in space, if you would expose it, like we know from simple film days, the more color and resolution you're going to get. And he's right. When you look in a simple telescope, 
I've had people come up to me and say, hey, you know, that's nothing like I saw in Life magazine, like Bill was talking about. The reason is your eye doesn't have the, the perceptibility because the eye is seeing something in a different way, and it doesn't have a time exposure. It's looking at it in real life. So the images you see in the telescope, as good as they are, are not going to have all these grandiose colors. It's going to be done by those big, long exposures from space telescopes or cameras, even here on the Earth, can get color. All right. Well, um, a lot of folks have been talking about Elon Musk this week because of his purchase of Twitter. Uh, Some folks may forget that before he was running Twitter, he was involved in a little company called SpaceX, and they had a big week themselves. SpaceX Falcon Heavy, the most powerful operational rocket in the world, finally launched out of Florida on Tuesday morning. Why is this such a big deal? Well, it's very interesting here, and not to knock NASA, but this came across, you know, talking to local people, we do a lot of outdoor programs with this guy. And a good percentage of younger adults and seniors come up to me and go, hey, how can Elon Musk just get these rockets off on schedule and has a pretty good success rate, and why can't NASA do it? Well, the answer to follow. But let's give him all the kudos that he deserves and their team. This, as you mentioned correctly, the most powerful rocket to date, some five and a half million pounds of thrust, It gets off the ground with three cores, basically, the one left and right, and a central core, which has another secondary rocket up there, too, for the payload. So if you take these 27 Merlin engines, Frank, this is what this is powered by. It's an incredible feat of technology to develop these Merlin engines. They each have about 190,000 pounds of thrust on them. They're using a combination of fuel. I call it binary, but that's not totally accurate, of liquid oxygen and a chilled RP-1, which in the simple world is called kerosene in a different derivative. So they launched this rocket. And here's the great thing. NASA didn't get the contract for launching some of the military secret satellites, which basically on board here, there's probably two. And what makes this mission even more interesting, that it gets off on time, almost like what? Just like clockwork, like you would imagine. This particular rocket has so much power that it sent two of these, you know, in quotes, secret payloads from the Space Force up to geosynchronous orbit. That's 22,000 miles up. So normally what these other rockets would do is launch them to a lower altitude where the spacecraft actually has to use its engines to boost itself up to the stationary geosynchronous. No, this rocket pushes it all the way up there in one fell swoop, which is amazing. And you actually see the two side boosters do the impossible. Now, if I was watching television like you and everybody else 40 years ago, and if we imagine we just watched Alan Shepard go up in the little Redstone rocket back in 61, can we imagine if we actually saw that rocket that he launched up in do a soft landing? That would have just like been, no, that can't happen. Wow. And it did. Isn't that amazing? It is. It is. So this SpaceX Falcon rocket, um, why was it delayed three years Well, they had a lot of issues that they were trying to get. It goes more into the politics of this. And they had contracts that they had to get signed. But the good news is, and let me go back to the comparison, and and I just wanted to give us a short answer if there's time. It's amazing. And again, we all love what NASA's doing. Look at the great history. But for some strange reason, and some people think it's not strange, they just have so many issues going on with this liquid hydrogen and the leaks and stuff like that. Their next agenda here, their next launch agenda is to do this, and we wish them well on November the 14th. And as we speak right now, I don't have a confirmation of this, it's more than likely that this rocket, the Artemis One, is actually starting to roll out of the vehicle assembly building to its long trek to get to the launch pad. they got to get this off the ground. 
But somehow, and, and I really can't figure it out, does he have a smarter team mm. of people? I don't know, but look at the great things. That was their 50th space launch of this year, and it just seems like it never ends. And, Frank, there's so many more of these so-called military secret pay- payloads that, are, that they have contract for, and they're eventually going to launch the Europa Clipper, which is a spacecraft that's going to explore the, jo- the Jovian moon Europa to look for ocean underneath the surface, a spacecraft. And the Psyche metallic uh, asteroid mission is also slated to be launched on a Falcon Heavy. And we haven't seen nothing yet because he's even got a more powerful rocket that they're going to work on. But Artemis, God bless them for what they're doing. That'll have eight point something million pounds of thrust. Then that will take the, uh, you know, the prize of being the most powerful rocket in the earth. Uh, we're going to continue with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, in just a minute. If you have questions about anything related to space, astronomy, and so forth, now's the time. Uh, four open lines if you want to jump on board. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The Capris singing about a moon out tonight. Well, if you are wondering what is in the night sky, including the moon, that's worth looking at, you are tuned to the right radio station. My guest for the hour is Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. He is a WABC contributor and a podcaster at WABCradio.com. He is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster. And he is what we call an edutainer who educates as he entertains, specifically as it relates to astronomy and space. But we're not limited to those areas. Steve, um, you obviously mentioned the eclipse that's going to take place on Tuesday. Between now and then, is there anything else in the night sky that uh, people should be on the lookout for? Well, sure, Frank. As we move into November, this is fireball season. And this is an interesting time of the year. What do I mean by that? This particular time of year, we go through debris from what we call Comet Enki, one of the second, it was actually the second comet that was discovered, which has an orbital period. First one, of course, is Comet Halley, the 76-year comet that moves around the sun. So from now until maybe sometime around maybe the middle of November, and I know the moon is getting brighter, for those that have patience, and that's what you need, patience is a real virtue at this. If you can, stay outside just around dusk, look to the sky, maybe even toward the morning sky. Look everywhere in the sky. I know it's kind of hard to keep your eyes, you know, in one position because you may see some of these bright objects. We just had one here over Tucson, Arizona, that was brighter than the full moon. Their debris from this, they think, that is what the astronomers think, debris from this comet Enki that might have shattered many, many millions of years ago. And believe me, folks, this is quite interesting. And, Frank, you know, the darker locations are favored. But I've seen a number of these, so you never know what you're going to see. But for the regular things that are in the sky, and they're pretty exciting, this is planetary season also. As the sun sets, if you look high in the south in a clear sky, you'll see Saturn visible to the naked eye. Just scan to the left as you move toward that position in the east. 
The brightest object now that sits in the in the night sky in the evening is is Jupiter. And it's beautiful. It's bright. You can see it better in a telescope. Even binoculars show you some of the moons if you hold it steady. But, Frank, Mars is now taking over as really this amazing object. Look into the northeast right around 10 p.m. So that orangey-looking object that you see is now less than 57 million miles away from the Earth. It's getting closer for a close encounter that's going to take place right around December the 7th. And there's going to be an interesting event for some parts of the listening audience that has the planet Mars will be actually eclipsed by that full moon in December. That'll be an amazing thing to see. But when I look in the telescope now, and I'm describing the telescope, it's probably 8-inch diameter telescope, meaning the mirror's 8-inch diameter. That's pretty standard. I can look at Mars right now and see it almost full. I can see surface features on there. And I can see in the northern polar cap, there's this blue haze that's over it because it's winter in the northern hemisphere now on Mars. And you can see that blue contrast. What is it? It's ice particles suspended in the air. So if you were there, it'd be extremely cold, like 140 below zero, maybe some winds. But you can see this. But Mars is getting closer. And it's an interesting, uh, interesting planet to see. So those are some of the summary items of what we can see in November. And then another meteor shower called the Leonids on the morning of the 19th. That's amazing. Is that something you could see with the naked eye, or you should have binoculars or something for that? Well, for that, it's it's interesting. Now, I get in trouble when I talk about meteor showers because a lot of people will email me and say, hey, I was out there, and you're telling me you can see meteors, and they only saw two. Again, patience is a virtue. But you can see it with the naked eye. This is interesting. The Leonids sometimes roar. Now, every 33 years, you get an uptick, but you don't know what to expect. You know, it's like that box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. So when you look into the eastern sky for this, this starts around 2 a.m. on the night of the 18th. And if you look to the east, that's where Leo will rise, the zodiac sign. Right in the head of Leo is where they come out. But, Frank, in 1966, I wasn't here in Arizona, but I remember this uh, from reading this, you know, over the last couple of decades. People were sitting at the top of Kitt Peak, one of the big telescopes in southern Arizona. And the Leonids weren't doing much. They were supposed to. Around 5.30 in the morning on the 16th of November in 1966, this is not made up. This is bizarre. I wish I was there. You wish. Everybody would wish. There were over 500,000 meteors streaming out of the sky in this big, hellacious storm as if you were driving with bright headlights through a snowstorm. Now, can you imagine that much debris? The whole sky, it looked as if something just absolutely from a dreamscape, seeing all these meteors, 500,000 an hour. It lasted for a well, from that time around 5.30 till sunrise, about 45 minutes. Imagine seeing that. So you never know what you get with the Leonids. They're like one of the more reliable showers. They're faint, sometimes faint meteors, sometimes bright, and they're very fast. Mm. Oh, that's, uh, well, uh, so see it with the naked eye at your own peril, right? We'll in say, the dark sky, right. Yeah. But patience, patience is the thing because then I want to get in untrouble or out of trouble. Because when I always tell people the truth, you know, obviously a lot of these things, like when Bill was talking about, you know, I, he was making sense. When you look in the telescope, you see blue and white and you don't see color because it's something that your eye can't perceive because those are cameras doing that. But, Frank, there's a whole lot of things people can do, even city dwellers, and that's what we appeal to. You mm-hmm. can do astronomy right from your own backyard. Uh, no, that's what's so great about it. 800-848-9222. Rose is in New Jersey. Rose, you're on with Steve Cates. Yes, good morning, and thank you for taking my call. Sure. Good morning, Rose. How are you? Yeah. Oh, it's great. Great talking to you. Um, you. I've taken 
I've taken a lot of classes in college on astronomy. I, I just loved it. And um, can you explain uh, if the universe is expanding or contracting, does that even apply today? Yeah. And also, if we just send a rocket and if it just keeps going and going and going, what 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 happens? Great answers. Let's take the first one, Rose, and they're great questions as we all love the study of the sky and astronomy. As this universe seems to be expanding, we know that from this big explosion, sometimes incorrectly referred to as the Big Bang. I like to call it the Big Expansion because we weren't around here to see something explode. Obviously, it was way before the Earth was forming. But what most people feel in the world of astronomy, quantum physics today, the big conundrum, and I talk about it a lot, is that the farther these objects are away, you would imagine that there would be more entropy or disorder. What's happening is quite the opposite. Instead of the universe slowing down, what we're seeing is that it's actually expanding and f going faster. In other words, it's acceleration. And it's something that we think we call, we know what we call it, is dark energy, but nobody really quite understands what would happen to that. And not to you know belager this with the details too much, this whole thing about entropy is interesting. What is it? It's a system's measure of thermal energy that is unavailable for doing useful work. So in simple terms, entropy is disorder. So it looks like the universe is not going to that entropy level as we see something pushing it faster. But if you took a rocket, I think that was your second part, or second question, is what would happen what, if it continued out into space? Since mm -hmm. there's no gravity forces in deep space, the object would considerably, it would just continue, that is, excuse me, continue to move through space at whatever relative speed it was unless there was a gravity force exerted on it, let's say it ran out of power, it would just continue to move through space because there's no resistive force in there. And that would be quite interesting for anybody on board because there's no, well, how are you going to break something or slow it down? It would just continue to go if no exertion of gravity was near it or around it. Interesting stuff. Thank you, Rose. 800-848-9222. Pete is in Wappingers Falls. Hello, Pete. Hey, Dr. Sky. <laughs> Good morning. I had a good morning. I had a question. Are there any space police? Like, what stops one of these mega billionaires from buying an island, making it his own country, sure. building a rocket, sending it up there, and hitting one of our main satellites? Who controls that? Or because nobody owns well, space. Well, there's a whole thing called space law, and I know that sounded funny when I mentioned about 20 years ago to people there was something called astrobiology. Well, they said, well, what's that? Well, the thing you're talking about is you're absolutely right. In the United States, the FAA is going to be the people that you're going to have to work with, at least to even do anything, go through this whole procedural process. Elon Musk had to do that when he started to launch rockets right. from Texas in Boca Chica. But you're right. right. He started in this country. But yeah. is there anybody we – we don't have a Starfleet, you know, Well, we've got Space Force, right, Steve? Well, we have a space force, but no, to go on to your question, Pete, no, to answer it. No, this is interesting. I'm I'm just trying to say this, that in other, let's say I went to a tiny little country somewhere and they didn't have any real sophisticated, you know, military or, or, or governance, you know, wherever that would be. Let's just say I choose to do this in Antarctica, whereas who's controlling Antarctica? I mean, it's supposed to be a free, a neutral zone where you're not going to have nuclear weapons and military bases. But right. if I started to launch rockets, it's some maybe some nation might give me a hard time, but the point is you could probably launch whatever you wanted. And the problem is even now with the big nations right now, we're talking about Russia, you know, not, not to talk right, crazy. Obviously. Yeah. 
they're looking to even have the, they, they have the capability and they've even warned us that if we do something in the Ukraine that they don't like or, you know, mess with something, I don't know the details, that theoretically they could shoot down some of our satellites and so could China. But the truth of the matter is I'm sure we have the equal force, too, because a long time ago, here's, here's the final part of this. I think you'd appreciate this, Pete. We developed from the F-15 something a long time ago called an ASAT. It's a, it's a missile that actually can go on, let's say, an F-15, and an F-15 can do this time-to-climb thing, which it can shoot those big afterburners up on the twin-engine F-15, and it could actually go so high, so fast, it could launch that missile from the aircraft. We could shoot a satellite down. So they're not the only people that have this capability. But right, Pete, why can't we all just get along, I guess, is really the bottom line in the whole thing. Exactly. Pretty, pretty amazing. 800 Jay is in Cincinnati. Hello, Jay. Hey, great show, Dr. Sky. Um, hey, was, Jay, how are you? Fine. I was kind of a rock hound, amateur rock hound as kids. We used to hunt fossils in creek beds. Did yep. they ever find any fossil proof, you know, extraterrestrial, like on meteorites or the moon rocks, for instance, of, of ancient life elsewhere? No, not that I know of. And there's something very interesting that you bring up here, because this is interesting, Jay. There was a meteor or a meteoroid, whatever you want to call it, a chunk of asteroid, that actually came down somewhere. And I don't know the exact location. I'm pretty much a guesser here, but I'm honest. It was somewhere down, say, like in, in, off of Indonesia, I guess. And the orbital calculations on that indicated that it might have been an extrasolar type of object. In other words, it came from another star system. So the, the search quietly has been on for that. And maybe that, if they could ever really track it or find it, but good luck. It's probably in, I'm guessing, maybe, what, thousands of feet of water. And unless you have the old Howard Hughes Glomar Explorer <laughs> that can actually go in the ocean and dig up, like, Russian submarines and stuff, that would be difficult. But, no, there, there's never been anything truly identified as being, you know, other than standard biology that we see. Like, the moon rocks didn't show us that there's another species you know, like a dinosaur egg of some kind of life or some crazy thing like that. So, no, uh, maybe those extrasolar uh, asteroids, if we find one, maybe we'll get some more positives on it. Thank you, Jay. You know, Steve, you, it strikes me we spent a lot of time talking about the objects that come from space to this Earth. Yes. And in our previous conversations, we've spent a lot of time talking about space junk, which are oh, essentially yeah. byproducts of uh, things that we've sent into space. Um, There's got to be a lot of concern about long-term space pollution or contamination. What is the most contaminated thing we've ever sent into space? Well, this is kind of funny, and it's an interesting story. And I read this, believe it or not, just about two weeks ago, and it has to do with Elon Musk. And I can't prove this, but I've looked at it a couple of sources, and it said yes. So here we go. We never intentionally sent something to the moon, like a, you know, a virus like the COVID virus, God help us. What they found out was when they launched Elon Musk's first Falcon Heavy back on February the 6th of 2018, what was the payload? It was his Tesla Roadster, the car. And in there, they put that cool little dummy, the Starman, in there. And sooner or later, it was actually later, they showed images of that whole thing as it came out of the capsule, you know, the upper stage. And it was floating around the Earth, and you see these pictures. And now it's going on an orbit that takes it around by Mars. But they're saying that that car might be still the most contaminated object because, what, that car was driven on the freeways of Los Angeles. I don't know how much they debunked that, but what would you have to do to make it? Because you see in these rooms, like in JPL, 
you see all these people in these white suits with masks and you know hoods on and hats to decontaminate any spacecraft because you don't want to pollute space mm. with microbes from the Earth. So that might still be, according to some, but it's not destined to land on anything. That's the interesting part. So the Tesla Roadster goes into history. But, you know, I would have kept the car in the ground. I don't know. I'd like that car, wouldn't you? <laughs> Same here. Absolutely. 800-848-9222. Uh, David is in New Jersey. Hello, David. Hi. Good morning, Dr. Sky. Good morning, um, David. How are hello. you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good, sir. Uh, so if if there's a... Assuming you have a spaceship um, mm. with a near limitless fuel uh, supply, let's say a nuclear supply, mm. going through outer space, and it continues to provide thrust, mm. um, will that? At what point does that spaceship reach terminal velocity, or is there a terminal vel- velocity, since there is since there's no um, since there's no gravity pulling it anywhere? Well, again, as I mentioned before, when Rose called and was talking about what happens when you just have a spacecraft going out into space, in this particular case, if you're talking about deep space, we're up, down, sideways, left and right. It's not like north, south, east or west. If you had velocity on a spacecraft, it would continue to go through space and just continue to move unless it was perturbed by another gravity source. Let's say it came closer to a planet. But this is interesting because I don't know if you heard this originally. I know, Frank, you had in your previous hour, you had somebody talking about time travel. Right. And this is bizarre because if we get into the thing of, well, would this thing get close to the speed of light or move out? You've got to remember, what this, what's the speed? It's relative to the expansion of the universe out there. So the mega speed of that is also related to the gigantic expansion of the universe. But this whole time travel thing, it's very interesting. It simply violates the second law of thermodynamics because randomness must always continue on. In other words, you, how do I say this in a simple way? Time can only move in one direction. It's called the arrow of time. And this gets very confusing because a lot of people think, well, we could go back in time. That's the most problematic thing. Why, I don't know, but the arrow of time simply goes in one direction. It's stated that it violates, time travel simply violates the second law of thermodynamics. So this particular randomness must always increase. So it's this entropy thing about disorder. And I think that's probably deep enough for what? For this time of the morning. Oh, yeah. No, that's for sure. And I'll be honest. I don't know. I mean, you know, to everybody calling, hey, if I don't know something, I'm just going to be straight up here. You know, it's the the best way to have a good night's sleep after you do a show when you're (laughs) honest, right? There you go. Exactly. I'm going to try that one one day. Um, (laughs) uh, We've heard a lot about the uh, NASA Artemis Project. What mm-hmm. is the latest with the Artemis project? How soon is uh, are we going to see some concrete results from Artemis? Well, again, kudos to all the engineers and space scientists that are working on this project. It's going to be the most powerful rocket. As I mentioned before, I can't confirm this. Maybe from your computer you can while during the break. But I've been told that it's supposed to be moved out as early as this morning. As it's on its tractor, you know, the big mobile launcher. Right. I mean, the mobile tractor that moves it out, not the launcher, to the launch pad. But then the latest date on this, or the most you know reliable date so far, is they're shooting for about an November the 14th launch date. Now, I've heard some people say it could be as early as the 12th, but let's hope this time that they get this baby up into space, because not only will it be the most powerful rocket, 
Because what you're trying to do here is you need to have the heavy lift rockets get payloads to space. And that's why with Elon Musk, gotcha. he, has, he has the ability, Frank, to get heavy payloads to low Earth orbit, like up to 140,000 pounds. But with this particular Artemis, you can obviously start building the gateway space station that will go around the moon and so many other things. So the simple answer is between November 12th and 14th should be the next launch date. And we give them, uh, you know, uh, the greatest success. We pray for the greatest success for the rocket to go. Joe is in Hell's Kitchen. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Uh, Dr. Sky, it's an honor to Good speak morning. to you. I heard you many times before. But it's great to be able well, to talk to you sir. about this. One thank question I have, I'm sure. Yes, one question I'm sure you've been asked about, and it's been on my mind since I've ever thought about, you know, we'll call mm-hmm. you up before, uh, Carl Sagan and everything else like that. Space itself, I mean, looking at how far it goes back through all the galaxies mm-hmm. and this and that, do you think we're ever going to find out where, I mean, it actually starts? I mean, to the point that where you can't go any further, like there's a, a, a distinct line going across the atmosphere, and it's like you can't go any beyond that, is that or it just keeps on going to the point that we'll never know how far it's, space actually goes? No, you ask it most. I, I think, Frank, if this was the question of, the, of, oh, of yeah. the hour, I think this would be the one. No doubt. No, seriously, I don't know, but I can just tell you from my own knowledge and research that about 94 billion light years is the expansion edge of the universe right now. That's what they think. But the truth is, I don't think it's ever going to have a definitive end, because if space and time, it, it's all it's all combined. In other words, it's a limitless expansion. It, it's going to continue on, we believe, forever. And the other theory, the dark theory is, is that there'll be something which slows the universe down and that will collapse again into its own original form. But no, the simple answer is, I don't think there is an end, and I don't think we'll ever know the end. And it just continues to expand, because remember, expand. Everything that we are, you, me, everything in this room, everything in your studio, everything that everybody's sitting in front of is all star stuff from that original expansion 13.77 billion years ago. Imagine seeing that, but uh, that's mind-boggling just to think about here. Thank you, Joe. Um, 800-848-9222. There's been a ton of Mars news in the last couple of days. Story about Mars quakes uh, hinting that the planet might be volcanically active. A story that there are these uh, that NASA spotting pimples on Mars. A story about that the InSight Mars lander um, may just have weeks left, and even some people saying that uh, scientists unveiling further proof of salt water on Mars. What is the latest with Mars, and is it true that Mars is actually coming closer to our planet? Well, it is coming closer to us, as I mentioned before, in the as I call it, the live sky view, what people can actually see. Because I think there's nothing worse than just talking about things that people can't see. So Mars, when you look in the northeast sky, or that's, I'm saying, around 10 p.m., now it's high in your sky as you're listening across this great country. You can see it. It's a red orange object. But let's go back to Mars, what's happening. Spacecraft Perseverance, still doing great research, actually drilling cores into the surface and to rocks. And it's actually saving these in little tubes. And what it's going to be doing, Frank, it needs to find a flat area. They haven't determined, well, they know the name of it, but they haven't gotten there yet. It's going to discharge these little tubes as time goes on. And all that is going to be for another lander that they're hoping to have go up in the next couple of years, which will actually retrieve these little cylinders, I call them glass test tubes, and bring them back to the Earth so we can actually see this. But you're right. They had a Mars quake of about four-something on the Richter scale the other day. 
that's kind of unusual for Mars because Mars doesn't have plate tectonics like the Earth does. So you would imagine that this is a whole different type of uh, mechanism that's causing it. We don't know. But what we were talking about with John Katsimatidis the other day, he asked me an interesting question about the Mars moons, like Phobos. And Mars has the two tiny little moons. And believe me, I'm going to go off into the sci-fi realm here because they're the strangest little objects. Little Phobos and Deimos are named after the horses, the horse, I should say, or the horses that drove or pulled the chariot that Ares or Mars you know, went into battle with. They're called panic and fear. But what's strange about little Phobos, too, is that it looks like it was a captured satellite from something, or even some speculate maybe an alien-type artifact. Who knows why? Because eventually those moons will cascade and crash into the planet. But here's a weird story. Culliver's Travels was written by Jonathan Swift. And in the book, I remember reading it in school, like, you know, in high school, we had to read it. The Lilliputians were the little people that he came upon, and they actually wrote about in their book, and this is what Jonathan Swift wrote. About 150 years before the Mars moons were discovered, he got the exact size, the exact shapes, the exact distances from Mars. And we didn't discover the Martian moons until 1877 at the Naval Observatory where the vice president lives. Wow. A guy named Asaph Hall actually discovered those in a telescope. So isn't that the strangest thing? So maybe you Jonathan know? Swift was a uh, time traveler. Yeah, there you go, my friend. It's like, it's always great to speculate. But isn't that one of the most bizarre that, stories? That is wild. Um, those, those two moons are very unusual. They're very strange. Oh, boy. That's wild. 800 We're going to continue with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Welcome to Earth, Earth Rock from the Sun. She walks into Smokies one hip at a time like a broken field runner slipping through the line. He likes the way she looks, so he calls a little wife, says, don't wait up for me. I'll be working late tonight. Wife hangs up the phone, bursts into tears, calls her sister up and cries, get over here. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Very pleased to be joined for the hour by Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Uh, we'll squeeze in as many of your questions as we can in the next few minutes. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Uh, Steve, as I believe you know yes. we. I am a fan of uh, Star Trek, and uh, you hear all sorts of news from time to time in the world of Star Trek about gamma rays. What exactly is a gamma ray uh, that's real as opposed to being fictional? And um, what what are some of the more noteworthy gamma ray bursts that have been detected? Well, this is highly charged particles from space. It's like atomic nuclei that are like smashing into each other with these great power. You know, if, if you took a look at this in the ultraviolet, you'd see more of this that part of the spectrum. It's a very, very powerful energies. We really don't know that as astronomers where the source of these gamma ray bursters are from. In other words, the simplest explanation might be this. When a star collapses, it can become a black hole, certain types of stars. When other stars collapse, they can become neutron stars. I'll take the neutron star as a candidate. 
Imagine this. A neutron star would be about six miles in diameter. I'll repeat it. Six miles in diameter. The magnetic field around that would be so disruptive if the Earth, now this is ridiculous, but here we go sci-fi-wise. If you could move the Earth next to the six-mile neutron star, it would collapse the Earth to a sphere of 1,000 feet in diameter. 1,000 feet. How would it do that? The power of this magnetic field is so great. If we had one of these gamma ray bursters, let's say out by the planet Pluto or the dwarf planet now, it would strip off all the magnetic stripes off of every single credit card you have. Maybe that's good or bad, depending if you use it too much. But the reality is these energy fields that are coming off of these stars, one burst that happened in October was the singular most powerful blast of energy from the universe ever detected. And that is off the charts, and it goes off into sci-fi. But I wanted to mention something briefly. You mentioned at the top of the program the story, as you introduced, my favorite movie, too, Forbidden Planet. And this goes back to 1956, my year of birth. But what's so amazing, Frank, I had a long time ago an interview with both Leslie Nielsen and the beautiful Anne Francis. Oh, I'll never boy. forget this. Wow. No, I'll never forget this. And Les, I couldn't stop laughing when I had this interview with Leslie because actually here's how I met him really quick. I was shopping at a Costco here in Phoenix about 20-some years ago, and I literally came around the corner rushing to get out of the store, and I hit my cart into another person's cart, and I said, excuse me. And I looked up, and guess who it was? Leslie Nielsen. <laughs> Leslie Nielsen shopped at Costco. <laughs> she, well, he did. He's passed on to the infinite. But I said to him, you know, I'm fascinated. I said, would you ever do a, like a, you know, an opportunity? Could we ever talk? And he's like, yes. So when I had him on the phone, the producer of the show and I, I couldn't stop laughing because I keep thinking of Frank Drebin. And he was talking like Frank Drebin from, you know, Airplane and, and all that. But the serious note, Anne Francis, wow, what a beautiful oh, person. Yeah. What a wonderful woman. And I caught her in an interview when she was rushing. But she spent about 45 minutes with me talking about her, her role as Altera Morbius. You know, I never obviously met Walter Pidgeon or talked to him. He passed on a long time ago as Dr. Edward Morbius. But that was a great time in my life. But the thing is, I just love that movie so Same, much. Same, absolutely. It, it, it's even a classic today. Absolutely. Hey, uh, before I let you go, I can't uh, avoid asking you about the news this week that uh, scientists have discovered a planet-killer asteroid nearly a mile long within yes. the orbits of Earth and Venus. Now, I know we talked about the DART project, and mm -hmm. NASA claims to be pretty practiced at diverting these asteroids by now. But would you be urging people to get their affairs in order? I would say you probably have to not really worry too much right now, but, but here, here's the science truth on this. You're right. They discovered something different, but this is something where I've always said this, and I'm not the leader of this. I'm always repeating what the other scientists say. Watch the skies in the area of what asteroids come from behind the sun. In other words, if you look in a bright sunny day, don't stare at the sun, but these are asteroids that come into our field in our orbital plane from the direction of the sun. And this happens to be one of those objects. It's un unbelievable. And that, you know, with all the great science and all the calculations, and they have it pretty good down there at JPO where they track all these. But the interesting thing, Frank, is that's, kind of, that's the kind of object that you want to watch very carefully because it's coming in in an area where it's surprising you. And if it's going to come and hit the Earth, at least you want to give us at least some kind of warning. Because even this little DART project, it's moved a tiny little asteroid only 520 feet in diameter, a nudge, 
We don't have anything yet, not to scare people, that would push that baby completely away from the earth. That's what we got to keep watching. Absolutely. 800-848-9222. Tony in Clifton has been patiently holding. Hello, Tony. Hi. You know, I... Good morning. I just love the whole concept of all our astronauts who really have made space travel be be part of our lives, and we've never yes. even, you know, gone up into space. And one of my favorite is John uh, John Glenn, who later became a senator. Mm-hmm. You know, as you look at all the astronauts from your point of view, who would be your favorite astronaut and, you know, that did the most from the space programs and, and took us sort of, further than any other. Do you have Tony, do you have a favorite one? Oh yeah. I love your question, Tony. And also going back to John Glenn, I had a short interview with him a long time for Space Day and reading wow. about his biography. I mean what what a great American. What a great person. But here's the other one that I had some time to really spend time with or talk with. I love the stories that I heard from Wally Shira. I mean, other than the Tang commercials that he did, but him and Walter Cronkite we're obviously very close to in the early part of the space program. But those two right. astronauts, to me, they epitomized the whole thing about sacrifice, dedication to country, and, and their stories, I hope, are told by many, many people. And children learn that these great Americans helped us move on to the stars, and the story is just beginning. Thank you, Tony. I'm a fan of Buzz Aldrin, uh, not only oh, for yeah. his accomplishments in space, but because he's he's such a character. He, I love that he doesn't hold his tongue about anything. I love Absolutely. that uh, he uh, he's very vocal about going to Mars now, and mm-hmm. uh, I love that, uh, you know, I think before it's all said and done, he'll have been a great pioneer in terms of lunar travel and a great advocate in terms of Martian exploration and Martian travel. 800-848-9222. Chris is on Staten Island. Hello, Chris. Yeah, a quick question. I guess this is related to the global warming discussion. Is it true that the surface of Venus is heating up? Well, Chris, the surface of Venus is pretty much a constant temperature. It's a horrible temperature. You know, that's why we're talking about that with some other folks. The surface temperature, excuse me, is well over 900 degrees Fahrenheit on a regular basis. So even spacecraft can't continue to, you know, survive there. The pressures are like taking that spacecraft down to, say, 3,000 feet in the ocean, the depth pressure, which none of them really survived. So it's not necessarily heating up anymore. It's just that we're the biggest question in science with Venus is, What happened to Venus because it turns backwards on its orbit? In other words, when it goes around the sun, it's going around like the regular planets, but it's rotating backwards. So if you're on Venus, God help us with the 900 degrees, we need a big asbestos suit. The sun would rise in the west, and its day is longer than its year. So imagine that baking sun through that sulfuric acid-type atmosphere. Not a place that I think any, all three of us want to go and anybody listening. Thank you, Chris. Um, Mike in New Hyde Park. Very quickly, Mike. Dr. Skye, do you think there's any potential that the universe is not merely expanding, but perhaps growing? Expansion being an obvious characteristic of growth. Mm -hmm. I would say this. From what we know and what I do in my interviews with other people, I don't have a book out on this, and I'm certainly always honest with the audience. To answer your question, I think the universe is continuing to expand, and we have to figure out what the heck the nature of this dark energy is 
because it's continuing to move everything out faster when you would imagine it's to slow down. Frank, the excitement's just beginning, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Uh, people can hear more from Dr. Sky at uh, wabcradio.com, and uh, you can also read the Dr. Sky blog at ktar.com. Steve, it's always a treat. Thank you. My pleasure. Look forward to our next encounter. Same Thanks. here. In the words of the great Casey Kasem, keep reaching for the stars while you keep your feet on the ground. 